0: Welcome back to the New Books Network's African American Studies channel. I am your host, Adam McNeil, a PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today we have on the podcast Dr. Ian Roxborough-Smith, who teaches North American and global history at the University of Fraser Valley and Douglas College in British Columbia. Shout out to Canada. We are featuring his new book published this year uh, by the University of Illinois Press entitled Black Public History in Chicago, Civil Rights Activism from World War II into the Cold War era. And so, welcome to the show, Dr. Ian Roxbury-Smith.
1: Thanks, Adam, for having me, and just please, please call me Ian Throat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, believe me, I... You know, it, it's one of those funny things where I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a Southern kid, and it's like a Southern American kid, and it's like, you know you got to make sure to give people their titles Adam. And I'm like, I have that in my head. So I have like, I will always let people tell me like, yo, I'm not with that doctor stuff. I am Ian. I am insert whatever. So you hear that mom. I know you're listening. So Ian said it. So, so just, just, just putting that out there. (laughs) So, uh, so, so what a great way to begin. Um, So, um, before we get before we get into the con uh, the contents of uh, black public history in Chicago Ian, um, would you be able to give us a bit of a, the story of how you uh, how you got to this particular book um, because you know you're uh, as we talked before you know you're a Canadian guy you know out in Vancouver so how did a Vancouver guy slide on over to Chicago and get engaged with with this phenomenal history
1: yeah for sure I mean a lot of people when they hear that I just uh, published a book on uh, African American history in Chicago. They're like, how did you end up doing that? And, um, you know, it's kind of a long winded story. Uh, I'll try to be as brief as I can, but it, you know, it connects with sort of like a honest intellectual engagement and interest that I've always had in African American history and especially the history of sort of the middle of the 20th century and the civil rights and anti-racist struggles, uh, of those periods. Um, you know, in part cause they relate so much to, you know, what's going on today, uh, in the world and in America. And, um, You know, so uh, when I was an undergrad, uh, I was really fortunate to to meet uh, a veteran uh, elder of the Civil Rights Movement who uh, coincidentally uh, retired to my hometown of Vancouver. His name's Jack O'Dell, and he worked really closely with Dr. King uh, in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And before that, he'd been involved in the Merchant Marines and actually a member of the Communist Party of the United States uh, for a period of time. Uh, So he was on, you know, the very radical left of the political spectrum, and uh, when he worked with Dr. King, he was one of the chief fundraisers uh, in the movement uh, through the early 60s. Uh, when the FBI went after the movement, he was one of the people who was singled out uh, and had to leave SCLC for a time, and he joined um, the editor board of Freedom Ways magazine in New York, uh, and so when I was doing my master's program, Uh, A number of years ago, I I worked on a thesis about the history of Freedom Ways magazine. And um, I noticed when I was working on that project uh, that one of the other editors that he worked with uh, initially with the magazine or the journal was a woman named Margaret Burroughs, who was the first arts editor of Freedom Ways magazine. And I noticed that she left the magazine after a short time. Uh, and you know, I always wondered what she what she did. Um, so when I went on to my PhD studies, uh, I went to the University of Toronto, uh, and my supervisor there, uh, Rick Halpern, uh, is a scholar of um, Black Chicago of um, uh, working class movements in Chicago through the middle of the 20th century, and he wrote about um, especially uh, meat pack meat packing workers and uh, the United. Packinghouse Workers of America and sort of the interracial activism that came out of the 1930s and 40s, the Meatpack, meatpackers uh, workers were among the sort of most advanced uh, workers uh, in terms of uh, advocating against uh, racism and, and for civil rights through the middle decades of the 20th century, probably one of the most progressive unions in the country at that time. Uh, and he said, well, you should, you should study Chicago more. I mean, lots of people were working on the black left in New York. Um, why don't you uh, work on Chicago? And I already knew about Margaret Burroughs and that she had these connections to Chicago and uh, sort of just followed her uh, her life story and the sort of um, work that she was doing with her friends and colleagues on what was what I viewed as effectively black public history, it was public history actives, it was building museums, um, curriculum for public schools, um, supporting local history organizations and societies that were working on getting um, black history uh, into the public sphere. Um, And I viewed a lot of this as, you know, a form of civil rights activism because it was a period in American history, of course, where there was a lot of repression. Um, It was the Cold War, um, the early Cold War still, especially anyone who was advocating civil rights, no matter what their political um, ideology was, was often viewed as, um, you know, potentially treasonous or um, uh, often uh, surveyed by the state. Um, And so, you know... uh, wanted to understand, you know, what people were doing to kind of endure that moment. And one of the sort of main ideas in my book is that um, people worked on public history as a way to um, sort of negotiate that moment uh, in American history, but also to make an impact on social change and to uh, advocate um, for, you know, a form of civil rights. And, and that is advocating for black public history. Um in the public realm. And so, uh, you know, this was a work that I did ultimately for a PhD dissertation and then I've revised it in this book. So hopefully it's a, it's a bit better now that it's in a book form. So yeah, that's my long winded uh, explanation of how I got into this. <laughs>
0: well, hey, I be- I truly believe that, um, our, our listeners are definitely going to enjoy, um, that they, they are enjoying, uh, you know, this particular story because it's, you know, it always is uh, remarkable and, and pretty cool to hear about how people get into the topics that they ultimately, you know, go into that, you know, spark their interest for the entireties of their whole careers. like right? It's like multiple decades. Um, and so to me, um, this particular story um, was really cool because it, you know, you spoke about it briefly uh, just now, Public history uh, uh, and and education and and really also collective memory too uh, a portion that's ingrained in Black resistance um, and, and so I never thought about it and considering the particular era at which this is occurring War II into the Cold War that is just like changing everything because right the Cold War you know if you don't have you know, um, the, the the technological advances of the late 40s and going into the 50s with um, with how technology is changing and televisions and such like that. You know, they, some people make the claim that the Cold War would not have, and, and really the Black gains in American society couldn't have happened without the Cold War. Um, because showing to the world, like, what's going on, but also internally about how, you know, Black activism, about how Black activism is so you know, um, so formulated with, you know, the education struggles. I had, a uh, someone on the program earlier, um, um, in the last couple of weeks, Hillary Green for her book, Educational Reconstruction, about how education and democracy and citizenship are ingrained with each other. And I see definite, definite, um, uh, uh, connections to your work here with, uh, black public history in Chicago. So definitely big ups on that one.
1: Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, f- I feel like there, there's a lot of connections to be made in terms of like, you know, progressive education activism that was going on, you know, from throughout this entire period. And it connects to a lot of, um, you know, scholarship that's out there, um, you know, in different fields, not just history, but, um, you know, public history, educational studies, and um, uh, African American studies, uh, you know, critical race studies, um, I think there's a lot of ways we can make connections, um, and I, you know, I'm sure I just know the tip of the iceberg in the way that you can make connections with this kind of this kind of uh, project. I think.
0: No, no. And, and I definitely agree with that, um, because also, um, would you be able to speak uh, a bit about how, you know, how your book gets off the ground with a particular um, with a particular um, uh, 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 subjects um, that you're speaking about? Um, because when we talk about, you know, museums in Chicago and we talk about museums just in general, I feel like a lot of times now with um, with the New Smithsonian, um, a, a museum for, uh, for uh, African-American history and culture, um, I, I feel like that has taken up so much of the oxygen um, that there's not enough for the other uh, museums as well. And obviously we know, we know, we know Lonnie Bunch and everybody out there, you know, doing great, great work um, and bringing people to D.C. for to go check out that phenomenal obelisk. Um, but there, there's some there's some great areas that predated them, too, that, that are doing some phenomenal work as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that, that my book and other books uh, um, speak to is kind of the history of even the sort of movements uh, that we're pushing for an institution like the Smithsonian Museum to finally occur and like I have a section in my book and it's sort of built on what other scholars like Mabel Wilson and um, Andrea Burns have, have written about. Um, they looked at uh, these efforts in the middle to late 1960s by people like Margaret Burroughs uh, and also Charles, Dr. Charles Wright from Detroit. We founded the um, Detroit, um, the Charles, what's now the Charles Wright Museum of African American History there. Um, they were both sort of key figures uh, in um, a consultation that actually happened with um, some government officials in the late sixties to that initially kind of envisioned the first sort of national museum of African-American history. And they, one of the major points that they made at these hearings um, and I outlined it a bit in my book as well uh, is, is that there needed to be uh, more public consultations with grassroots, independent uh, museum organizations like the, Salva Museum in Chicago, or the museum in Detroit um, that was started by Charles Wright and his associates there, uh, that there needs to be more consultation with these independent museum bodies um, for there to be, you know, uh, a, a more kind of just formation of a national or federal museum um, at the at the national level and something that, you know, obviously it took, you know, decades as you, as you, as you sort of alluded to there with Lonnie Bunch and, and the figures who were able to finally bring that institution into being. But I mean, do you think about the amount of time that, that took place between the late sixties and now uh, for something like that to finally occur? And, you know, they were debating it then, but it was clear that there were tensions and, um, you know, unresolved uh, issues about how that, whole project would be formed and you know that's a whole other uh series of studies that could be done and um but just in terms of understanding that there have been many of these independent museums that have existed you know for a long time that um that you know were built uh from the bottom up and connected to community and grassroots efforts at um you know public education at um uh, public history and and you know really advocating uh, a form of, uh, of civil rights, I think, in that moment um, as well. Like if you're thinking about the middle of the 20th century and the kind of um, things that were stacked against um, anyone who was trying to do something like that in that period of time.
0: And, and with that as well, um, I think when we look at the uh, the city of Chicago and in, in how, you know, your time frame, you know, being in the kind of like that middle – like that, that late, I was say about, about mid-20th um, uh, century time frame, there's so much going on. Um, you know, Chicago is such a center, right? People like Ida B. Wells and, and Oscar DePriest and, and others had been making major names of themselves um, through Chicago um, as well. And so, you know, Chicago had a particular vibrance Uh, With with uh, with uh, with black folks there, Um, and so you know when we look at things like um, your first chapter curriculum reforms in World War II Chicago, um, what were what were some of the conversations that were being had um, in looking at not only them being activists within the World War II context, but also looking at what kind of curriculum reforms could they really drive? Because it seemed that so much of the resources and so much of the minds of many Americans and, you know, black and white at times as well, were very much focused on the World War II effort. And so would you be able to talk to us a bit about um, what those conversations were um, during that timeframe about that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, uh, those curriculum reforms during the during the 40s, I think, um, you know, it was it was important that they were happening in Chicago. I mean, Chicago was, um, you know, as you know, and as you already kind of pointed to with the, the emergence of major public figures like Ida B. Wells, uh, you know, came to Chicago from Memphis and um, the early 20th century and major, um, you know, activists against lynching and Oscar de Priest, um, you know. Uh, a major uh, local black politician, um, you know, it really, they came to kind of embody this this long tradition of, uh, you know, like uh, the growth of a black metropolis in Chicago and uh, you know, one of the major northern centers where people moved to over the course of the great migration periods, you know, World War I to uh, the Second World War. Um, and I think that you know, Chicago, uh, you know, had always been this kind of major site of, uh, of, of movement uh, and growth of uh, black American communities. And it was sort of um, through that period of, of history in World War II. And it was sort of natural for uh, especially for uh, sort of knowledge production projects to kind of emerge out of that moment that were connected to, in part, as you said, the war effort, um, you know, Uh, trying to present kind of uh, an American universalism or something like that in, in that, in that period. Uh, And, you know, it, made sense for people who were also advocating against discrimination in that moment to kind of use the wartime opportunity to kind of push for that further. Right. If you think about like the double victory campaigns um, uh, that were waged by especially African-American newspapers in that same period, um, you know, fighting against fascism uh, in Europe as well as fascism in the United States uh, when it came to like Jim Crow segregation. And I think that, um, you know, having a curriculum reform project in a city like Chicago, uh, which, you know, had this vibrant, also, um, black cultural renaissance that came out of the 1930s and 40s that also uh, meant that there were lots of people working on, like, um, cultural work, you know, literary um, um, uh, groups, uh, you know, uh, people putting on plays um, uh, connected to, uh, you know, this really kind of vibrant intellectual community that was on the south side of Chicago. And I think that the uh, the people who were working on curriculum reforms, like Madeline um, Stratton Morris uh, and uh, her husband Sam, uh, Sam Stratton, um, you know, were very much connected to that community. They were public school teachers on the south side uh, in that period, uh, and, um, you know, they were interested in you know, changing the curriculum of the very schools that they taught in, uh, which of course at that time had to conform to this, you know, whatever standards were set by the Chicago uh, School Board and ultimately by uh, the state. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they needed to kind of work against that. and But they were also emboldened by the kind of very vibrant um, um, uh, Black cultural activism that that persisted through that period that was, you know, really trying to use that wartime period as an opportunity to kind of push for, uh, for gains, um, in terms of, uh, anti-discrimination. I mean, it's also the period of like, you know, the first, uh, um, you know, the bluffed attempt at the March on Washington that led by A. Philip Randolph, um, you know, desegregating defense industry. I mean, there's all kinds of things happening nationally where you can sort of set up the coordinates of activism in World War II. And really that kind of opening wedge to the sort of long civil rights moment of the middle of the 20th century.
0: And with that as well, um, you know, like you just mentioned, it seemed like all 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 events pointed back to Chicago in, in some way. It was even going all the way back to the eighteen ninety three uh Columbian exhibition with uh Douglas and Wells and, and other folks too and and so, you know, Chicago has a long legacy of, of, of activism. Um, and, and so, you know, one thing that I thought was also interesting too, um, you know, someone like uh, 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 Carter G. Woodson, right? You talk about curriculum reforms and such like that. One of the things that, um, that. that struck me when i first started to learn about you know a lot of your um early 20th century and mid 20th century historians they were not just writing for the academy a lot of them were writing curriculums for black teachers um beca- yeah and i and i thought that that was something that was really uh, a, an intriguing portion to learn about because you also have webs of that in your book especially in this particular chapter
1: absolutely yeah and i'm i'm really just sort of trying to sort of, uh, you know, convey the, the work that like really fat, important work done by, um, Professor Pero Dagbovey on, you know, the, the black history movement as it emerges out of, you know, the 1910s and the whole efforts of Carter G. Woodson and his associates to build the, uh, what's now the association for the study of African-American life and history, which I think is the oldest or longest running African-American history organization in the country. And, um, uh, you know just uh the sort of networks of local people uh not only in chicago of course it was built in chicago initially and then moved to dc uh, but there were networks of people all across the country mostly women um you know uh club women uh people who were school teachers um, uh, who uh, started these like local history societies um you know in in all kinds of random places as well as big cities um and uh you know like you said they were building these um you know, what were effectively public school curriculums, like if you go back and watch the, um, or read the uh, uh, old editions of the Negro History Bulletin, um, you can get a sense of this because there there's these, um, you know, write-ups on, like, local efforts at building, um, you know, local history societies or modules for public schools, um, uh, you know, right from the sort of early decades of the 20th century when... When um, uh, Carter G. Woodson's movement is kind of being built, you see a lot of it in like the 30s, 40s, and 50s too, I think, um, and it's it's fascinating. I think it it would be like a, a mine for future scholars to just keep looking at some of these local efforts and connecting the dots.
0: And how did um and how did these teachers really b- try to not only blend in the history but also to build to also build in a component of, of cultural pride um, as well, because I thought that that was also something that I found um, cool to learn about was not only how, you know, you talk about the the, the Negro history clubs and the Black history clubs or um, the different uh, plays that went on, right? Um, because I even remember reading that about um, Charlotte Fortin during the Civil War down on the... Uh, during, down in Port Royal, South Carolina, and how she's teaching her students about Toussaint Louverture, right? And how, you know, in, in the context of, 18, of of 1863, you know, right in the confines of war, she's teaching students about, you know, black history and, and to say that, yeah, black folks have, you know, they, there's more to our history than enslavement, though, you know, you shouldn't be necessarily ashamed of it, uh, but there's more to the story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I'm sure that um, you could you could look at, like, Reconstruction-era schools and find, um, you know, that there were people working on sort of alternative curriculum that wouldn't have been necessarily part of any kind of officially sanctioned, um, uh, you know, modules uh, that relate to, you know, uh, affirming Black identities in, in moments of oppression, right, that, um, you know, especially coming out of the Civil War period, or you can think about um, you know what B. Wells was doing, like the 1890s, uh, you know, uh, anti-lynching campaigns, and and then connecting that to, um, you know, affirming uh, the identities and histories of, uh, of Black Americans in the late 19th century. Um, so I think in any given moment, you can probably make uh, make the case that there are people who are working on similar um, similar efforts to affirm, um, you know, these kinds of identities, and and perhaps even call it, you know, a form of um, Uh, Of public history or of of history making, Um, and I think maybe that's the theoretical discussion you need to have. Is like, you know, uh, you know, at what point does it become like uh, officially um, a form of public history or a form of um, history making? Right. I think that there's discussions we can have about that, but um, but I mean, uh, it doesn't seem like a lot of people make those connections, you know, in terms of um, understanding that people have been doing these kinds of things uh, under moments, especially of dress and, and incredible oppression um, and continue to kind of work on projects that are similarly, you know, producing knowledge. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, and, and that's why I thought that this opening chapter was really a great way to um, introduce your topic um, because it allowed for, um you know myself and the other readers to be able to have a grounding with kind of the foundational levels, um, because you know education at, is really at the foundation of it all. Um, because for to be a public historian, it's about you know necessarily how do you educate a mass group that's you know not necessarily academic but you're also not limited to them. Um, so, so how do you make this information as palatable to your audiences? And so that could be a teacher. That could be someone like, a, like an interpreter, a docent. Um, and so I really appreciated that part. And then you also got to see some of the important figures like was Stratton, Morris, and you had already talked about uh, um, uh, uh, Mrs. Burroughs as well. Um, and so that I, that I thought was a phenomenal way to to really begin it. But then you also get to see some of how you know folks like uh, Du Bois, Woodson, Aptheker, you know these different historians, how they're kind of getting involved in this particular process too. And you see how politically this is very this is very vibrant too, because you have a lot of members of the left that are getting involved in these processes as well of the of the far left, of the radical left, I should say.
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot of a lot of people realize there that it's like a strategic thing that they can get involved in right like in order to kind of further you know not necessarily their agenda but like what they're politically committed to right which is you know in in, for the case of many of these black leftists is it's like fundamentally um you know trying to reconstruct american society to you know advance um social change um beyond kind of a you know, a moderate level, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you, like you can you can make those, uh, uh, you can have those discussions about, you know, to what degree were people, if they were, you know, within, say, the, the communist left, were they, you know, following dictates from Moscow? and um, You know, certainly that was true of many people who associated with uh, the radical left or the communist left through the middle decades of the 20th century. Um, and I think we need to be aware of that. But at the same time, a lot of these figures, you know, Paul Robeson, Du Bois, um, uh, Herbert Aptecker um, uh, were, you know, also genuinely working on projects that were, you know, critically important to, um, you know, advancing, uh, the cause of, um, you know, civil rights, uh, of, um, of social justice, uh, in America. Um, you know, if you think of like Aptecker's studies on like slave rebellions, uh, and, um. You know some of it' we know now to be a bit embellished, but at the same time, it was really critical documentary you know primary source research that he did and that kind of work is stuff that influenced some of these curriculum reformers that I looked at in the forties um and uh uh you know I think beyond influencing the historical profession has also um you know uh gone beyond the academy, and I think that you know people have been making these connections. Um, you know, in the public realm, um, uh, outside of the academy, and that's where that's where you know a lot of this uh, this work is is most important. I think a lot of these figures through this period, you know, the the major figures that are that are mentioned in my book, um, like Du Bois, who's working with the Afro American Heritage Association, and figures like Ishmael Flory, um who was a South Side uh, Communist Party organizer. You know, I think Du Bois realized in this moment that um, you know these local organizations could make an impact uh, because they were at the grassroots level. They were working with, um, with people, um, you know, on the ground rather than, um, you know, the groups like, um, AMSAC, the, uh, American society for the study of African culture, which was that CIA uh, funded organization. Um, you probably heard of them and they, um, they, uh, you know, are, very problematic in terms of how we how we conceive of them, especially considering that it was like an arm of the state, um, you know, effectively because of being funded by the CIA. So Du Bois was well aware of this. And so he looked to, you know, other um, groups and institutions that were working, you know, that likely against that kind of agenda. Um, I think it's important to, that we have a sense of that, you know, those tensions and those um you know, diversity of tactics, and, you know, like, I think there's some, you know, it's worth looking at AMSAC still, and, and the people who were involved in it and the things that they produced, um, because it's still part of this moment, it's part of, like, knowledge production in that period, but it's just to be aware that there was really, you know, a lot of tension in politics involved in this, too, that's connected to, you know, the Cold War politics of that period, and, you know, different agendas, and, you know, um, you know, structures of power, and how, Knowledge gets produced, right? So yeah,
0: Du Bois. I for for, from uh, taking the cue from the work uh, of uh, Dr. Chad Williams at Brandeis, uh, working with uh, Du Bois on on the First World War. I think Du Bois had learned his lesson a long time ago with World War One about getting involved in anything government subsidized. uh, uh, When it came to this kind of deal, where uh, such high stakes. (laughs) <laughs> and so uh, self-esteem of, of black children is definitely high stakes when it comes to education. So I, I definitely would like, I definitely think that he, he learned his lesson. Um, and then also um, getting into your next chapter, you know, we had mentioned about um, the Disabled Museum and, and uh, you know, its, uh, its importance along with the, the, the museum in, in Detroit as well, the Charles Wright. Um, you know, you're, you're imagining a, a black museum in uh, Cold War Chicago. Um, would you be able to set the scene of kind of like what was the origin story really of of what became the DuSable Museum and and how, you know, prior generations had kind of dreamed it into its actual existence and 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 made it work?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean I, I really kind of saw the the growth and the building of the museum as kind of connected to uh the, the different efforts that, especially Margaret Burroughs and her husband Charles Burroughs were doing uh, through the through the 1940s and 1950s uh, to kind of work on um, on education efforts, on um, on public history efforts. Um, they were initially, um, especially Margaret Burroughs was part of a uh, an organization. Um, uh, sorry, the name just escaped me, uh, the National uh, Negro Museum uh, and Heritage Foundation, uh, which uh, I argue in the book was, a, was connected to the National Negro Congress, uh, which was uh, an important civil rights organization uh, that my friend Eric Gelman has written extensively about, um, that emerged in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and it was like a coalition of uh, black labor and civil rights leaders. Uh, many of them were leftists, but also included people like A. Philip Randolph. Um, Uh, who was a leftist but obviously anti-communist. And uh uh so the uh Museum and Heritage Foundation um was kind of like a one of the cultural um arms of this organization and it was active and it kind of expressed uh the first vision for a museum in Chicago uh in like the nineteen forties. Um and then it really didn't get anything off the ground. It was just kind of imagining the museum and um uh Burroughs was a part of this and um, Uh, Sam Stratton was a part of this organization, Um, uh, a number of other people who I, uh, who I mentioned in the book. Um, And so Burroughs never really kind of lost the desire to kind of build a museum. And she kind of took that vision for a museum uh, and kept it alive through the 1950s, um, you know, uh, in partnership with her husband, Charles uh, Burroughs, um, as well as other figures uh, like Eugene Feldman, who was a a fascinating figure, is Jewish-American background, who, um, you know, was basically an autodidact um, uh, in terms of black history, uh, and really got involved with the building of the museum, uh, and then a number of other figures um, helped to kind of uh, build the museum and launch it, uh, finally, in 1961, um, uh, as the, uh, the Ebony Museum um, of uh, Black History and Art, um, and so uh, that was the first name of it, and then it evolved eventually into took the name of uh, du Savolo which was that um, you know the the first uh, settler of Chicago of uh, Haitian background um, uh, who came in the uh, uh, the 18th century uh, to the city um, but yeah I mean uh, that's sort of how that vision uh, for a museum got started uh, in Chicago um, and uh, and I think that there are, you know there are independent museums like this that have existed elsewhere in the country as well that still need to be kind of, their stories still need to be uh, told uh, as well. I can think of that Acostia Museum, I think, in uh, in D.C. Um, there's the uh, uh, Freedom House Mural Snowden in, in Boston. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like, I mean, there's lots of, of museums. So the South Museum is not the only one, but I think it was arguably one of the, the first to kind of, you know, sort of like build itself as an explicitly African-American history museum. Like, devoted to history or as a museum, um, whereas others, you know, uh, might've had other foci like, uh,
0: you know,
1: uh, repertoire theaters or, um, you know, different, you know, cultural, uh, forms that they emphasized. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, in a nutshell where that vision is coming from, I think. And, uh, it spans that like 1930s to 1960s long civil rights periodization. Um, and i think that uh that's that's where uh you know i see the kind of origins of of that um of that particular vision for the museum um and you know margaret Burroughs is the key the key figure here of course
0: and so what with the museum what were some of the uh what were some of the difficulties and and some of the challenges that were faced by uh, uh margaret burrows and, and the rest of the uh staff at, at the DuSable uh, museum um because you know it's it, it, they, it seems like there was a there there was some resistance at times uh, uh to what they what what they were trying to do there
1: totally yeah and i think um you know during the 1950s, before they actually got the museum off the ground, um, you know, uh, Margaret Burroughs was a part of uh, you know a group that actually tried to form a chapter of the um, uh, of Sala, which uh, then was called the Association of the Study of Negro Life and History. So they tried to like uh, restart a chapter there. There hadn't been a chapter since the uh, 1930s, um, like a, a like a consistently running chapter, um, and uh, they actually had their application for. A local chapter blocked um, uh, by a, uh, uh, a local clubwoman uh, in the city uh, who basically opposed the uh, um, the effort to establish this chapter, and uh, on on I think what were basically ideological reasons. Um, and uh, this was something that uh, you know it meant that there wasn't really an active chapter over the course of the 1950s of the SNLH. And, uh, you know, I think it was uh, indicative of the kind of opposition that, um, you know, the particular group uh, that Margaret Burroughs was associated with, which was more to the left of the political spectrum. Um, You know, Margaret Burroughs had close associations with black communists. She herself, I think was what we could call a fellow traveler, someone who, uh, you know, was sympathetic to the left or the far left. Um, you know, I think that they um, they faced uh, repression. Um, uh, you know, she was a school teacher uh, on, as well on the South Side, and um, she actually got in trouble with the, uh, uh, the school board as well as with um, South Side Community Arts Center, which was another um, really important uh, cultural in- institution on the South Side that had a board of directors in the 1950s that was becoming increasingly conservative and, you know, wanted to... Um, prevent people like her from having influence on the sort of programs of the, um, the cultural center. Um, so, you know, in the different, uh, areas of her life where she was working and, and being an activist when it came to being a, uh, an artist and an educator, um, she was being, she was facing challenges and she eventually had to go to, uh, she took a, a sabbatical, um, which was her, which she was entitled to as a school teacher in, in Chicago, uh, took a year off, uh, went to Mexico and, painted and learned, uh, with some, uh, radical Mexican artists. Um, and I think, you know, with all these experiences, she was also, uh, you know, uh, surveyed and, um, monitored by the FBI over this period and, uh, Chicago red squads, um, which were like the local arm of um, security state and during the cold war period in a lot of American cities. And of course, uh, black Americans were um, especially targeted, um, you know, regardless of their ideology, um, during this period, and, and she faced all of these kinds of challenges um, uh, and, uh, you know, continued to do what she was doing, which is trying to educate young people, trying to make a difference uh, in the community, and she always maintained her connections back in Chicago and came back from her experience in Mexico in the um, early and mid-50s and, uh, you know, got right back to work at sort of envisioning this this museum that had never, um, never been built yet, uh, the one that the... Um, uh, that had been uh, first envisioned during um, the activism period of the National Negro Congress in, like, the 40s. And she'd been involved in that period as well. She was much younger and just starting out as a school schoolteacher. Uh, but through, you know, all these challenges during the early Cold War, um, she just kept that vision alive. And, uh, um, you know, these friends of, and associates of hers encouraged her and they were able to... Um, Eventually uh, rent out a coach house on uh, South Michigan Avenue uh, that they uh, converted into the first sort of workable space to uh, to build this museum in. And it's just really kind of fascinating that they were able to, you know, maintain that vision despite the, the challenges and the political opposition they had to, you know, forming local black history groups or, you know, um, getting um, alternative curriculum into their classrooms or, you know, Trying to do art projects on the south side that um, you know were avant-garde or were kind of against the grain. Um, so you know, it's just it's uh, you know I, I had this fascinating source from um, this uh, uh, college instructor in Chicago named St. Clair Drake, who was you know mm-hmm. a, a, an icon as well of, of African studies. Um, and at that time, he was a college instructor at Roosevelt University, and you know really really sharp mind and, and really kind of in tune with what was happening. And, um, you know, he was observing the sort of tensions of the cold war period, especially, and you know, what was happening to uh, the radical left. And I think he, he felt that there were some people who were being channeled into, um, black history efforts. And, uh, from his point of view, this was, this was kind of, you know, uh, it meant that they were broken and beaten. They were being surveyed by the state. Um, but I actually think that because they, kept their vision alive of what they were trying to do, that they were actually kind of emboldened by these experiences, especially if you look look at what happened after, in terms of the building of these institutions, especially the DeSalle Museum. Um, So it's, yeah, I guess I kind of disagreed with with Drake in that one moment, even though, you know, most of his scholarship is incredibly important, of course, um, and, you know, impacts, uh, you know, so much else. Uh, But I, I thought it was just helpful as well that he made that comment about uh, these black leftists who have gone in for the study of black history. Um, and, uh, you know, that to me really struck me as like, well, that's a, that's kind of like a, uh, you know, that sort of golden nugget you, you look for as a historian. Like, okay, so that, that makes sense. That makes sense why all these people are not necessarily like, you know, continuing to be involved in like the civil rights movement out on the streets or in, the labor movement, for example, right, where a lot of the Cold War repression was really coming down hard through that period, right, early 50s. Um, uh, People, you know, uh, if they were going to advocate for civil rights, had to be also, you know, advocating for, you know, pro-Americanism, right, or something like that. So, um, you know, just thinking about what this group of people who uh, were active in the 40s um, were doing to kind of negotiate that early Cold War period and to keep, doing you know social activism and um uh, social justice activism
0: and it's really wild to me how the surveillance state you know is very central to a lot of the uh productions of history right now and how a lot of folks are writing about the 20th century like yourselves and they're incorporating uh records from effectively the surveillance state um so so i think that like, I had that epiphany when you were speaking before, and I was just like, oh, shoot, like, that's, that's kind of wild. Like, you know, she was in Mexico, and you'd see, you know about the history of uh, Lorraine Hansberry's father, who goes to Mexico as well. And so, you know, obviously, Hansberry's name is very important to the city of Chicago in so many ways. So I thought that part was also something that was pretty intriguing, especially when you talk about, um, you know, people trying to revise history who are a lot of times the people who are inhibiting history uh, in, in the way that this surveillance state had its tentacles into so many different things.
1: It was really pervasive in this period, and like it affected a lot of people's lives and labors, and um, you know, it had this uh, uh, you know this this effect on uh, you know the the shape of uh, the civil rights movement uh, as it was emerging, reemerging in the nineteen fifties. Uh, you know, uh, sort of the Cold War civil rights narrative, like scholars like Mary Dudziak have written about, and um, um, you know Carol Anderson, I think, really well. Those are critical works. Um, uh, but I like to, you know, especially in, in my work, I've tried to incorporate the perspectives of, of scholars who've been trying to kind of push against that that framework as well, like um, Mary Helen Washington. Um, you know, I'm looking at on my bookshelf right now the other Blacklist, which is a great book um, that kind of really speaks to exactly. You know what you're just talking about with the the effect of the security state on on um you know black left cultural workers going through that early cold war period and what they were doing to kind of you know continue to engage in cultural struggles and political, political struggles uh there's also like bill mullen's work um uh, and uh, James Smethurst, who's written a lot on like, the origins of the Black Arts Movement, um, I think makes a lot of these connections. And you know, he's done some, some work on um, you know, the, the effect of the security state on a lot of these movements. Um, and, but he, he's one of these scholars as well that, that, that is trying to make and look at these connections between this earlier period of the 30s and the 40s, uh, with the, uh, you know, fifties and the sixties, that sort of long civil rights, uh, narrative that, you know, Jacqueline Dowd-Hall wrote about, you know, which is well over 10 years ago now. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that scholars are continuing to kind of make those, those connections and, and kind of, uh, further try to, try to kind of, uh, complicate the sort of received narratives of, like, you know, the traditional um, periodization of the of the civil rights movement, you know, like the 50s and the 60s, um, which, of course, is, is still there, and it's not to discount it. Um, you know, you can see how things really accelerated at a certain point after Supreme Court finally revises Plessy versus Ferguson, but, like... Um, but it took a whole lot of other people working behind the scenes for decades before that for that to get to that point. Even with the, if you look at the NWCP activism that's been going on for decades uh, prior, right? So,
0: mm-hmm. and 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 for me, one of my, I, I would say my favorite chapter, if if you. You know, make me choose. You know, I I would choose your third chapter. Um, and, and if you don't mind, I've actually never done this for a program, but I want to do something different on this one. Um, on page seventy-five at the at the bottom portion, do you mind if I read a portion that I thought was my favorite portion? Very good. Um, And so and I quote, indeed, the stated purpose of organizations such as the Afro-American Heritage Association and much of their educational efforts was to promote accessible black history in the community that clearly stated how U.S. history to that point largely allotted black American contributions to the nation. Moreover, By advancing a radical revisionist analysis of U.S. history, one that indicated the role white supremacy and racial ideologies played in the promotion of such faulty views of the past, the AAHA and its allies hoped they could encourage the development of a radical political consciousness among the city's African-American working class. That right there blew me away. I was like, that is exactly, in my eyes, the point of it, things like public history um, and, and not only, you know, public history, or black history, but also activism as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what that's what those figures uh, like Christine Johnson and Ishmael Flory were trying to do in that time. Right. Like Christine Johnson uh, had was the principal of the Nation of Islam uh, for a period of time, um, the Nation of Islam University in Chicago um and you know before that she'd had you know connections to the black popular front so she wasn't someone that was fully in the mold of like the the cultural nationalism of you know the leaders of the nation of islam and there's lots of figure i think there's lots of new studies now on the nation of islam that have you know complicated that uh organization's history so beyond just this kind of conservative cultural nationalism that often gets um you know reproduced in um uh you know most conventional histories right um, but, you know, figures like Christine Johnson, who are working locally on the ground, were advancing these kind of, uh, really innovative, um, visions of the role of public history and, and education at the grassroots level, uh, that was outside of the arm of the state, outside of, you know, surveillance. Um, and that was, uh, trying to also revise, um, American history from the bottom up, right? Like, you know, um, Fully cognizant of some of the most innovative uh, scholarship that was existing in that time, like Du Bois and, uh, and and others who were had you know had done so much to revise like the um, you know the plantation models of uh, you know like the history of slavery and stuff like that um, you know and they were putting this at, at the grade at the public school grade level right um, to you know have for for kids to learn about and uh, I think that you know from the 21st century we can look at some of the modules and think well that's pretty pretty um you know it's just sort of creating sort of heroes and it's too simplistic but in fact in that moment you know if you looked at the average american history textbook in a in a public school uh there wasn't anything like that in that curriculum and so the fact that these people were doing these kinds of um uh educational efforts in that moment is, uh, what I argue was, was pretty groundbreaking and, um, you know, they didn't have a lot of support for it at that time, as was evidenced by, you know, how, how small the uh, Afro-American heritage association was and, and the kind of surveillance that it underwent. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, it was, it was doing something incredibly important and, uh, um, you know, was really kind of a repertoire of the overall picture of civil rights, uh, struggles in that period
0: and also um in 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 that particular chapter and in later chapters you talk about the importance of uh chicago's black arts movement and also the importance of really uh in your cultural fronts and public history activism portion you talk about arts and politics as well and you know you got you you the nineteen forty, late nineteen forties, and nineteen fifties, going into the sixties. There's so much going on, you know. Robeson, Belafonte, Potier, you know, Hansbury. There's so much happening as far as arts and politics that it, it, it just, you know, you cannot, you know, you can't, you can't really even speak about it enough about the importance of, you know, figures like that in trying to raise the consciousness of black community members. Would you be able to speak upon that as well and how it intersected as well with with the Disciple uh, Museum?
1: Sure. Like, are we talking about sort of, um, like, people who are, like, Cultural icons through that period, who were kind of making an impact at the community level.
0: Right, right. I was just giving them as like the the more uh, uh, more commonly associated, but also about how just in general the Chicago um, Black Arts Movement and also the the individuals on the ground and how they worked with um, the the DuSable Museum and other in uh, other areas of, of black heritage and such like that as well, and in production.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, the work that went into building the Zoll Museum, you know, came out of, you know, the prior efforts of uh, figures like Margaret Burroughs and, um, you know, a lot of her her close friends and associates from Gaydon, a number of others uh, uh, were all sort of, uh, you know, they were all active in the Black what's called the Black Chicago Renaissance in the 30s uh, and the 40s and, and right through parts of the 50s uh, and they helped build organizations like the Southside Community Arts Centre which had been established during the New Deal period and, and uh, you know, they were, it was a vibrant um, literary and cultural scene that rivaled, um, you know, the, the Harlem Renaissance in New York in terms of scope and size uh, but it's sort of not as well known um, and I think that it uh, it had a big impact as well on the sort of ability of a, a lot of the people who had been involved in that movement, of that renaissance. Uh, Anne Mace Neufer has written a lot about this, uh, as well as um, uh, Darling Clark Hine. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of these, the people who had been involved in that uh, that cultural renaissance, many of them were, were women, uh, you know, continued to work on cultural uh, activism right through this period. And I think that's that kind of milieu is what Lorraine Hansberry is kind of, also coming out of, because she, you know, having grown up in Chicago, she would have been very cognizant of, um, of that that cultural milieu, right? Um, and, uh, you know, very kind of uh, aware of it. I mean, always, I think about the her iconic play Raisin in the Sun and how it's sort of, um, you know, I've listened to this old interview that she did. Um, right around the time that it was first staged on Broadway, and she's reflecting about how it, how it, it was a product specifically of like a Southside Chicago uh, family's experience, right? You know, partly autobiographical and all that, as you know. And uh, and you know, I think that her sensibilities also connected uh, in, in making such an iconic play was also connected to um, you know the the marvelous growth of these uh these cultural institutions uh that had maintained themselves in black chicago through that period and like that's gets back to what we were talking about earlier with the sort of significance of you know the black metropolis in chicago and the sort of cultural and um uh, uh well, the institutional presence of of um, uh, of uh organizations of businesses um of uh um you know uh churches uh of you know like a bricks and mortar presence uh that had Mm -hmm. been in the city for such a long long time and i think that that has an imprint um on why these cultural laborers were, were possible uh, through this period, right? So, you know, even on people who were on the radical left could still maintain themselves because there was such an institutional presence. Like thinking of Jeff Helgeson's work here too um, on um, on sort of uh, community formation through through this period and um, sort of the connections between civil rights activism and like um, you know building black businesses, um, uh, you know through um, the growth of black Chicago right um, uh-huh. or Christopher Reed, Christopher Reed's work um, you know there's there's uh, you know this connects to like obviously a huge body of scholarship um, just on Chicago um, and uh, um, you know I think that these educational efforts would not have been possible had there not been that that sort of longstanding standing uh, institutional presence of, of you know independent organizations and businesses and um spaces that were uh that enabled these kinds of things to take place um, in the context of like you know otherwise fairly repressive cold war um you know jim crow america
0: yeah and so can you also speak a bit about how um you had the in the in the later portion of the civil rights movement in the late 60s and how the disabled museum was kind of like a bridge between the old guard civil rights movement folks um and also like the younger generational folks that would have gone into the uh Black panther party and and folks like uh Henry, uh Henry Hampton and uh not Henry Hampton that's first for something else but for uh for for, for Fred Hampton rather uh, could you speak about kind of like how the the museum helped to bridge those divides as well and to show even more why it's an important institution
1: yeah for sure I mean like um you know they it's not like the museum was like hosting Black Panther uh, meetings or anything like that, but I think that they were making they were making connections to like younger generations who were involved in the kind of Black Power activism that we see coming out of the mid to late '60s. So. You know, uh, figures like um, Haki Matabudi, uh, who fans Third World Press, that ultimately, you know, like a key a figure of the Black Arts Movement in Chicago. He's mentored very closely by uh, Margaret and Charles Burroughs. In fact, she's I think he's written a lot recently and, and talked a lot recently about those connections. Um, and, um, you know, a uh, figure like Sterling Stuckey, who is also, you know, not really necessarily part of that Black Power generation, but, um, you know, younger in the early 1960s, is very influenced um, by uh, Margaret and Charles Burroughs and goes on to be, you know, one of the, you know, key figures in the founding of African-American studies uh, through, you know, the late 60s, 70s uh, and onwards. Uh, and, you know, so, like you can find lots of connections like this back to the museum and the cohort of people that, that kind of built it through the early 60s. And, you know, I think they're also, uh, you know, it's also connected to the kind of programs that they devise for for young people, right? There's efforts to kind of get a lot of school kids to come and visit the museum. Uh, there's, like, prisoner outreach programs in the late 60s, which are really fascinating, um, that I think connect really well with, you know, people who are uh, becoming active in, like, you know, combating police violence. Um and uh, you know, uh, making connections with people who are uh, criminalized in the in the prison uh, in the criminal justice system, and like uh, enabling their education, of course, and like um, you know, like that's a that's the kind of thing that you know is still totally relevant today. And like they were doing it in like the '60s, right? And uh, um, it's um, you know, it's just, there's all, all a lot of connections to the sort of younger generations that we see in that. Um, uh, especially in that like fourth chapter um, uh, you know especially black arts movement uh, uh, figures, uh, people who were involved in kind of uh, you know production of murals in the south side of Chicago, which um, you know uh, are obviously very important for a form of like artistic production in the, the black uh, power era um, you think of the the wall of respect, uh, which is a really iconic mural that was removed by the daily administration in the early Early seventies, you know, there there were connections with some of the artists who were involved in, um, you know, uh, organizations like Afro Cobra um, uh, and and Black Arts Movement organizations in Chicago that again had connections to uh, that kind of older uh, older guard leftists uh, like Margaret Burroughs and, and others who were. Um, part of, um, you know, continuing to do and support that kind of work right through the 60s. And, you know, the whole sort of growth of the museum through that period, I think, is connected to those intergenerational collaborations. Um, You know, the book tries to tell that uh, part of that story.
0: And also with, with the last couple of minutes that we do have you, um, would you be able to talk to us a bit about kind of like the, obviously the, the museum is still around and, and, and the story is still being being told, but as someone who's written this particular story, what is... In your mind, one of the important legacies of this particular period um, about the civil rights activism from World War II into the Cold War, as this story is being told through the black public history uh, uh, activists uh, uh, group that that we spoke about throughout our interview. What what do you think their legacy should be to folks?
1: I think it's probably just, like, the importance of, like... Maintaining uh, independent cultural and political organizations during periods of like repression and austerity, like um, you know, we're in a period now uh, where public ed- education is under attack everywhere, and like public schools are getting closed, uh, as well as like ongoing instances of basically like the criminalization of of, of black and brown life, uh, you know, across North America, um, you know, anti-immigrant. Uh, xenophobia and racism. And so having sort of independent cultural institutions that are not going to be sort of beholden to like a large um, uh, power body, whether it's like the um, federal government, especially under the Trump administration, uh, or, um, uh, you know, a large uh, university or corporation, like, I mean, lots of good can happen within universities, but, um, you know, just having kind of grassroots independent, organizations that are built from the ground up that can continue to do these kind of labors, I think is the lesson for the, the current moment um, and kind of maintaining them. And I think the Dassault Museum has faced challenges on that front, you know, especially through the late 20th century. And uh, I, myself and other scholars have written about that and, um, you know, maintaining kind of uh, institutional solvency. And it, But I think it'll continue to survive. And as other institutions that are, that are independent um will continue to survive but people need to support them and um you know i think that's one of the lessons of the current moment is that you know energy needs to be put into the local and the sort of grassroots um to keep um keep these kinds of things going um you know because because of what's happening the austerity um that's happening around us in the world
0: most definitely and um and also, can you tell us with uh, with this amazing amazing book? Um, you know, we, we we get a little greedy uh, on the new books and African American Studies channel, where you know we have such phenomenal authors and historians on our on our on our uh, on our on the program. We want to know when to expect them back, and maybe a little bit of a uh, uh, a look into what the next project might be for you so with that being said would you mind telling us now that this project is over what what can we look forward to in the future for you ian
1: <laughs> well I, yeah i don't i don't know if i could be included among the pantheon of amazing authors that you've had and uh, and books but <laughs> i'm just glad to be part of the conversation and, and appreciative to have my book uh talked about in this this great podcast series you have um and uh, you know, I learned a lot, you know, from from listening to your podcasts, and then you know, go back going back through the catalog. It'll be really really helpful for uh, for those of us who are continuing to try and work on on projects. And uh, if I'm able to get to a next project outside of my teaching schedules, uh, I'm working on a new project that relates to um, uh, sort of uh, racial inequality in um, in Chicago and other uh, American cities, uh, connected to um, sort of uh, uh, what I view is kind of like a, a Catholic anti-racism. Um, you know, there's a lot of Catholic communities, and especially in the urban North, that were very violently racist, uh, especially to uh, Southern migrants, Southern black migrants as they were moving up um, during the Great Migration. Uh, and so I'm trying to look at, my, stud- my new study is going to look at people who were um, trying to kind of resist that racism uh, from within the Catholic community. So I'm interested in connections between like um, Religious identity uh, and anti-racism, and then also, you know, Catholic forms of racism, uh, which existed in the the urban north that were different than in the south. So it's kind of a different project than what I was doing before, but I think it connects to, uh, you know, people who were interested in social change and um, during the same period in uh, in American history.
0: Very well, then. And so, with that project, we're definitely uh, looking forward to once uh, once it materializes and get it gets published. We'll we'll definitely have you on for a, a return visit to uh the new books networks african-american studies channel and so thank you again for being on the program today and um and, and we definitely look forward to having you on uh w- w- once your teaching schedule you know gets you know t- get get gets taken care of as we, we we all know how that goes and so we totally understand um and, and so you know we we definitely appreciate you for your time and we definitely want to have you on again uh w- when the time is conducive
1: for sure thanks so much i really appreciate the the time you took
0: most definitely and so once again uh new books in african american studies listeners we have had on the podcast today dr ian roxborough smith who teaches north american and global history at the university of the fraser valley and douglas college in british uh columbia and so once again we had him on because of his phenomenal book published this year through our friends at the university of illinois press entitled Black Public History in Chicago, Civil Rights Activism from World War II into the Cold War. Until next time, New Books in African American Studies listeners, I am your host, Adam McNeil. Over and out.